Good morning. You know, there have been some walls that have stood out in history in different ways. We think about the Vietnam Veteran Memorial Wall in Washington, D.C. It stands as a distinct wall and an iconic picture of sacrifice in our nation. The name of every person that fell in the Vietnam War is found on that wall. When you look at other walls in history, you might think of the Berlin Wall. The Berlin Wall was a physical barrier, but it was more than that. It was a symbol of the Iron Curtain in Soviet communism. Or what about the Great Wall, the Great Wall of China? It has been built and rebuilt for over 2,000 years, and it spans 5,500 miles in its length. But if we want to think about perhaps the best-known wall in all the world, it could be, the case could be made, that it is the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall in Jerusalem. You see the pictures of especially the men in their black hats or women with veils over their head as they stand at that wall. The idea is that if they can be right there, they're closer to God than anywhere else on this earth physically, and they can be right there in the presence of God in a way they think is special and distinct from anywhere else. But if you think about that wall, it has historical significance in this way. This wall is the only thing that is standing after the the, uh, General Titus came in with the Roman army in AD 70 and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple that would never be rebuilt, and destroyed almost everything except for that portion of the wall that once went around Jerusalem. Now that wall belonged to the second temple, Herod's temple, it's called, named for Herod the Great. He was the one that started that temple project and finished it in 19 B.C. But I want us to think about the ancestor to that wall and to that temple and to that complex. To do that, you've got to go several hundred years before, to the time of Solomon, about 900 B.C., when the first temple was constructed This was done by God's design and with His instructions. And as they built that temple, it was the place where God settled and put His presence there. And so the people of God came on their festivals three times a year, their special feasts, and they offered up worship to God. It was the the place of symbolic representation of God. But throughout time, because of the disobedience of God's people, God allowed enemies to come in. And if we think about 586 B.C., that's when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, this reigning ruling power of the Babylonian Empire, comes in and Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple and he leaves the walls in ruins. And after 70 years of captivity, the people come back and they are faced with some restoration movement ideals that God gives them. And one of those is to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. We think about what's symbolized by the walls of an ancient city. We understand and appreciate it more. The walls that go around a city in ancient times are the first and the best line of defense against enemy invaders and armies. And so when we get to Nehemiah, we have the work of the great builder, Nehemiah, who is tasked by God to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. As we read just a moment ago in in Nehemiah 6, verse 15 and 16, as Dale read that to us so well, there we see that the job was completed. But that is not to say that the work was not without opposition. 
We read in the book of Nehemiah, and those opponents have names. They bear names like Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and other enemies. Nehemiah 6 and verse 1. Those enemies took on the form of a priest named Deliah and a prophetess named Noadiah. Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 10 and verse 14. But if you'll notice, these enemies, by and large, did not carry weapons in their hands. The weapon that they used was their tongue. But the tongue is a deadly and dangerous weapon, isn't it? The writer James would tell us about that. He says that the tongue is a fire. So is it set among our members that it stains the whole body. It sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. Every beast and birds... And serpents and things of the sea is tamed and has been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly fire full of deadly poison. James chapter 3 verse 6 through verse 8. I want you to notice with me that these enemies that come against Nehemiah have some weapons. But it's not in their hands. It's in their mouths. And you begin to see those different tactics that they use. When you notice what these enemies do in coming to fight against the people of God, they use their tongue for deception. In Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 2, the Bible says that these uh, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, they call to Nehemiah, send a letter to him and say, we would like for you to meet us in the villages of one of the, in the plains of Ono. And Nehemiah said, I knew that they meant me harm. They send out a very kind, spirited letter, and they're saying, please meet with us. But their intent was to deceive. You'll look a little further down in the chapter, in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, and verse 4 says that they sent out the same letter four times, and then verse uh, uh, 4 says that they did it a fifth time. They pestered and they badgered. They just wouldn't leave Nehemiah alone. He had a work to do, and they just wouldn't stop. They didn't content themselves with that. You look a little further down in the chapter in verse 8 and you'll find that the enemies of God engage in gossip. They say that there is a report that is given and Gash Moose says that it's so that you and the people intend to rebel. That's why you're rebuilding this wall and that you are going to be king according to these reports. Now, Nehemiah says, this is something that you have invented in your own mind. It has no correlation with the truth, Nehemiah 6 and verse 8. And then they resorted with their tongues to intimidation. He says, Nehemiah does in verse 9 and verse 19, they meant to frighten us, to discourage the workers so that it would not be done. And then they use false teachers. You remember that in the middle of that chapter, perhaps, in Nehemiah chapter 6, that there's this ambassador, this messenger, this prophet that comes, and he says you need to stay put, stay where you are, because they're trying to kill you. And Nehemiah said this, this one was hired by them. And I could tell that God had not sent them. Nehemiah had an important work to do. And it was... So important that God had given him very specific instructions. But there were plenty of people all around who did not want to see that work get done. When we look at the work that God has given us to do, you'll notice the title of the lesson that we're talking about building walls for God. Certainly that's in a figurative sense. We are helping to build the walls of Zion and that spiritual kingdom, the church. And with the task that we've been given to do, it's so important, it must succeed. 
we can be sure that there are enemies who do not want to see it be done, as there has always been against the people of God in trying to do the work of God. So how do we rise up and build when there's opposition? Well, we can learn from Nehemiah at least four things that we can do in order to be successful builders for God. The first thing that we have got to do is that we have got to avoid distraction. Remember when I said that those enemies called out to Nehemiah and said, we'd like for you to come down to the plains of Ono so that we can meet with you? Nehemiah gives an answer. He was focused on the task at hand. He says, How should, why should I leave this work and come down to you? Why should the work stop? Now, Nehemiah wasn't being a snob. He's not saying that these people are beneath them. Verse 4 tells us that he had wind of their ulterior motives. Nehemiah understood that he had a work to do and he could not leave it, that it was a work, that it was a great work, and that to leave it he would have to go down from that work. As we read through what happens in Nehemiah chapter 6, we are impressed with the fact that he would not be distracted no matter what. You know, the task was not without its difficulties. What he had to do was he had to rebuild the walls. He had to hang gates. And they had done that much by Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 1. But the doors still had to be set in place. At every stage along the way, we will notice how Nehemiah faced the uh, opportunity to be distracted. In Nehemiah 2 verse 13, he comes and he surveys the wall at night. Nebuchadnezzar had left it in ruins. It was so bad in places that he had to skirt around it that it was in rubble, Nehemiah 2.13. And then Nehemiah sets about to try to coalesce, to bring together all of these different people. They're diverse in their age, in their gender, in their income levels, and they have their roles and their works that they do. He brings them all together to work. And except for one group, the Tekoite nobles, everybody else gets to work. And they build the wall. And then we go to Nehemiah chapter 4 and he sees that as they're trying to bring this to a conclusion, there are the hecklers, there's the bystanders, as we used to say, the people from the peanut gallery who aren't doing anything on the side and they're calling out to them and they're saying that this work is so feeble that if a fox were to jump on it, he would knock it down. And then there's the people themselves. They're trying to build throughout all of this. It's only 52 days, but it's an intense 52 days. And Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 10 says that the people were disheartened and they were discouraged. At every stage along the way, Nehemiah faced distraction. People who were trying to keep him from focusing on the main thing, the work that God had him to do. You know, the early church had exposure to the same distractions and diversions like we do, but they would not let anything to deter them from their prime objective. I'm impressed with this, that even to the effect that in Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, when Saul is breathing out threats against the church, and he forces them from their homes, and they have to leave Jerusalem, it says that they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. They had focus. When I think about the mission that God has given us, and the work that he has us here to do, I realize that there are so many things that can distract us from the mission. We have social events and social causes. There's politics, there's sports, there's leisure, there's entertainment, there's problems and problem people. 
There are uh, controversial issues and false teachings. There's materialisms. There's church buildings. There's all these different things that might distract us. And some of those may contribute to the mission. Some may work against the mission, but none of them are the mission. The mission is for us to seek and save the lost. And you know, Paul was a man of extreme focus. He writes this from a jail cell in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. He says, I don't count myself as one who has already attained or laid hold of the prize. But I lay hold of that by which I'm laid hold of by our Lord Jesus Christ. Forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forward into those things that are before. I press toward the prize for the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, verse 12 through 14. The Apostle Paul would speak to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 24 and he says, Do you not know that those who run a race all run, but one receives the prize? So run that you may win. Those who exercise in the games exercise mastery, self-discipline in all things, and they do this to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. And so I run, it's not with uncertainty. I box, not as though beating the air, but I discipline my body and I make it my slave, yet lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. When I look at Nehemiah, here's what I see. I see a man who knows the work that God has given him to do. He knows who he is. He knows who the enemy is. And he knows who God is. And it's why he can keep focus and not let anything distract him. When I think about our mission, we need to make sure that we focus on what the work is. To remember who we are, who the enemy is, and who God truly is. If we can do that, we will build for God. But then second, if you're going to build for God... Not only must you avoid distraction, but you've also got to correct misinformation. We see that in Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 8. When you look at Nehemiah, Nehemiah is not trying to protect himself. He doesn't care about himself personally. It's the work of the Lord and the word of the Lord. There are things being said that just were not true. And he had to correct that. You know, I think that's one of the graces that's very difficult for us to determine in this life. When we think about the harmfulness of rumor and hearsay and gossip, the book of Proverbs is very clear. That a slanderous person stirs up strife, Proverbs 11 and verse 13, and a gossip separates intimate friends, Proverbs 16 and verse 28. Nehemiah faces Sanballat in Nehemiah 6 and verse 8. And they say, we hear all these things that are going on. And Nehemiah says, you've invented it in your own mind. It's a difficult grace to know when do you answer and when do you ignore. In the book of Proverbs, for example, in Proverbs 26 and verse 4, it says, do not answer a fool according to his folly or you will be like him. Answer a fool in the way that his folly deserves so that he'll not be wise in his own eyes. Isn't that the challenge? When do we ignore those things that are not true? And when do we engage and and help somebody so that they can see that what is being said is not so? I think the New Testament makes that very clear for us. The uncomfortable truth is that sometimes we may have to take one for the ultimate team for our Lord. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, Peter speaks to the Christians who are striving to do right in a world that's going wrong. And in the face of that, Peter says, as you suffer in this life for living the Christian life, I want you to look to the perfect example. 
He says, for even hereunto were you called, that like as Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps, who did no sin, neither was there any deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again, who when he suffered, he threatened not, but he kept on committing himself to him who judges righteously. 1 Peter 2, verse 21 through 23. He endured such hostility of sinners against himself because of the mission, the building mission that he had. Hebrews 12 and verse 3. And so our Lord tells us in trying to pursue true righteousness, He says there may come a time where you have to take a loss so that the cause of Christ can go forward. You may have to suffer personal hurt so that Christ's cause can succeed. That's what He's saying to us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 39 through 42. But what about when the word of the Lord is threatened? When the work of the Lord is facing the possibility of disruption so that it can't go forward... There has to be the ability to stand up for the truth of God's Word. I think about the Apostle Paul as a great example of this. In Acts chapter 21 and verse 29, do you remember the Jews? They go and they grab uh, Paul and they drag him out of the temple. They stir up the entire city and they bring him out and they ultimately physically assault him. Why? Because they had seen him earlier in the day with Trophimus the Ephesian and they had supposed that he had taken them into the temple. Now, the Apostle Paul is not worried about his own health and safety, if I can appreciate Philippians 1, 21 through 24. He says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Where does he say that? In prison for preaching Jesus. He allowed himself to suffer loss. But I want you to notice that in Acts 23 and verse 13, he defends himself. He wants to be able to continue to preach the gospel and for the cause of Christ to go forward. And he says, they cannot prove any of the charges that they have brought against me. Sometimes when we're striving to build for Christ, it's going to draw the opposition. I've heard people say that if a church is growing, it must be liberal. Or if a church is thriving and striving to do great things, There must be something unsound, unethical, or immoral going on. Or perhaps sometimes they'll invent it in their own mind. When we are thinking about the cause of Christ and the work that we have to do as we build for Him, we need to keep in our mind the idea that we've got to correct misinformation. We have got to allow the Word of God and the work of God to go forward. He's counting on that. There have been some outlandish rumors in history When you think about some of the things that people have said, there was a psychic in London, England, who at the very beginning of the year predicted that the city of London was going to be destroyed by an earthquake, April 9, 1761. To make matters worse, there were a couple of minor tremors in the city of London, not exactly a hotbed of earthquake activity. And so when April night came, people ran out of the city. They fled away and they spent their day in the countryside because they were sure it was going to happen. And one soldier was so taken by this idea that he ran throughout the cities of London screaming that it was about to be destroyed and he was committed to an insane asylum. On another occasion, there was the events that occurred during World War I. In 1915, there was a Canadian official named Sir Courtney Bennett. And Sir Courtney Bennett began to circulate the rumor that there were 80,000 well-trained, well-armed uh, German-American citizens who were arming themselves, preparing themselves for war. 
As a result of this, there was a report that the Prime Minister of Canada wanted to see the Bennett Report, as it was called, to see if it was so. He was ultimately discredited and disgraced. But sometimes these rumors can be far more destructive. In 1998, in a remote region of Indonesia, there were... Uh, there was a rumor circulated that sorcerers were causing bad things to happen to the people of Indonesia. And the police wanted to thwart that and to, to keep that from becoming a problem. And so they decided to intervene. And they collected all of these so-called sorcerers. And as the process of relocating them to a safe place, part of the process was to have them check in at the local police station. And as villagers saw that, in their minds it confirmed that these sorcerers were guilty of hurting their neighbors. And so they began to kill these sorcerers. And they found at the end of the investigation, when all was said and done that all of these things that were reported about sorcerers reportedly making their neighbors fall sick were uh, the object of hearsay and rumor. wasn't true. Nehemiah was trying to serve God, was trying to work for God, uphold the word of God, and there were people who were trying to spread misinformation to stop the work. Nehemiah wasn't concerned about himself, but he wanted the truth to go forward. You think about the culture that we live in. You think about the picture that is often painted not only of Christianity, but of uh, the church. It's not an accurate picture. Now, you and I may have to suffer for that individually, but we need to defend the body of Christ. We need to defend our Lord Jesus Christ. It's His work. It's His word. We've got to make sure that the truth is shared accurately. But then, if we're going to build for God, we've got to do something else. We've got to practice supplication. The thing that's so impressive about Nehemiah is that he never goes very far or very long before he gets on his knees in prayer. In this very remarkably short book of the Old Testament, the Bible records for us eight prayers of Nehemiah. Nehemiah prays for his brethren Chapter 1, what an example. He prays for wisdom. Oh, he needed it in the work he was doing. Chapter 2. He prayed for deliverance from evil in chapter 4. And he prayed for blessings in chapter 5. If you begin to look at the characteristics of his prayers, you'll see that his prayers were characterized by persistence, by praise, and by patience in chapter 1. It was characterized by passion in chapter 2. It was characterized by a dependency on God to help in chapter 6 and by proper motivation in chapter 13. But when we get to chapter 6, two different times, he uses the phrase, Oh God, you can hear the appeal, the supplication, the pleading with God to help him in this work of rebuilding for him. He says, Remember me, O God. And remember, O oh God, my enemies, as we engage in building for God, we must make sure that we're consistently, fervently praying. Nehemiah understood he couldn't do God's work without God's help. And what impresses me is that Nehemiah, in his prayer life, was such an example that it's going to filter down to the people. When the leaders pray, then the followers pray. In Nehemiah chapter 9, you find the people of Nehemiah's charge praying. They're praying, asking God to forgive them. They're praying, showing dependency upon God. Someone has said with regard to this that we must pray before we work 
And we must work by faith. And we must work on our knees. I can't think of a more frightening prospect for tomorrow than a church not praying today. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, Let nothing be done uh, um, by anxiety, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, Philippians 4, 6. Jesus taught his disciples that they should pray and not faint, Luke 18 and verse 1. Do you know that there's over 250 prayers recorded by God in the Bible leading us to see that prayer must be important to God? But is prayer important to us? We cannot hope to do God's work without God's help. God has us as builders. He has us here to build his kingdom, to spread the borders of his kingdom. And if we're going to build successfully, we must practice supplication. There's one other thing I'd like you to notice with me. If we are going to build for God, we have got to aim for completion. Nehemiah was allowed to go through a lot of different opposition. Here's something, I guess, that I struggle with in my flesh. If I'm doing something wrong and I pay the price for that, I think I can appreciate it. You reap what you sow. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7. But isn't it harder to think about enduring difficulty and opposition when you're just trying to do what's right? Doesn't, isn't that more of a faith struggle? You, you're saying perhaps in, in your prayer and devotional life, God, I'm, I'm trying to serve you the best way that I can. Why is this happening to me then? Don't you think Nehemiah must have felt that way? It's amazing to me that in every stage along the journey there's opposition. But from different directions there's opposition. There are those who are trying to push him to quit. I want you to think about the fact that they were intimidating enemies. And really, they're the focus of the first half of the book of Nehemiah. They pester, they discourage, they intimidate, they frighten, they pretend to be for the work. And in all of this, these external pressures, Nehemiah is facing that. We'll talk about Nehemiah chapter 4 in just a moment. But they were constantly saddled with these discouraging enemies. But not only did they face external pressures, there were internal problems. There were things that they had to to struggle with within themselves. There was a feeling of favoritism. There was discouragement. There were people who did not join in the work. And then at the end of Nehemiah in chapter 13, they had to face personal shortcomings. They had to face their own individual struggles. When you look at what happens in Nehemiah chapter 13, they were struggling with worldliness. They were, they were seeing folks who were misusing the time of worship together. There was spiritual neglect in the families. When you look at Nehemiah, he refused to give up because he had a goal in mind. He aims for that. And he doesn't let anything keep him from doing what God had given him to do. All the talk in the world, all the, the pledges and the promises and the intentions are no good if we don't aim for completion. If we don't do it, what's so remarkable and why I believe that Nehemiah is in the Bible is to show us that it's possible to plan, to execute the plan, and to enjoy success as you seek God's will first and you follow through and you do what he's told you to do. When you look at Nehemiah's circumstance and they face those different opponents... You watch what happens in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 15 through 20. No wonder they're going to succeed because everybody did their part. 
In Nehemiah 4, 15 through 20, it says that each man went to the wall, each one to his own work. You know what we're doing on Wednesday nights? It's been exciting to me to hear these different vision groups that have stood before us and have talked to us. We've got two more this Wednesday night. They're talking about the emphasis of this work and the direction that we're trying to go. We're trying to fulfill the vision statement of reaching out to the lost of this community and helping them to go to heaven as we build a closer church family. And we're going to do that by emphasizing what's important. And the elders and those who have been involved in this vision process are saying, here are seven things that are so vital. We're going to try to lead out in that. That's what those vision groups are saying, those teams. They're saying we've all got to be involved in getting it done. There is a place. Each one can take their place on the wall. We don't have to all build the same section of the wall. It's all got to be done. They also, they were united. They... Each one found their work, but they all worked together. They prepared for the battle. They had weapons in their hands. Communications were set up. But the thing that helped them to succeed, perhaps most of all, was that they trusted God to be with them and that He would deliver them. A a phrase that's found 20 times in the book of Nehemiah is, Our God. They had their focus on God. They knew that they could complete with God on their side. What is it that Paul said in Romans 8 and verse 31? If God be for us, who can be against us? There is no objective that we can have. There's no ambitious goal that can be set for us that's beyond our reach if it's within the will of God and if we have God's help to do it. But there's going to be external pressures. There's going to be a world that's not going to want us to succeed. And you know, I wish I could say that as we grow closer as a family, that we wouldn't have internal problems. But the fact of the matter is, you have a physical family, don't you? You love them very much. You're hopefully growing closer to them through the different stages of life. Is the conflict gone or the problems gone? You think about in your marriage. I don't care how long you've been married or how compatible you are. You have problems, don't you? As long as we're in this life, we're going to have to navigate and negotiate through those kinds of things. And there's going to be personal shortcomings. You defeat one area in your life and trying to serve the Lord, guess what? Another one pops up and you've got to deal with that one too. But God knew all of that. He knew the external pressures, the internal problems, and the personal shortcomings. And He still said, I want you to do it. I want you to have a fire in your bones. Like Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 20 and verse 9. I want you to be able to say with Paul, I am ready... Acts 22 and verse 21. I am eager. Romans 1 and verse 14. I must. Acts 19 and verse 21. We've got to be fired up to do this. And we've got to complete it. We love passion, don't we? We love to see it in others. We love to feel it in ourselves. That passion's got to be wed with perspiration if there's going to be success. Nehemiah had more to do than just rebuild walls. After he rebuilt the walls, he helped them with Ezra to restore the law. And then he helped to shore up the people's spiritual shortcomings and weaknesses. The truth of the matter is we're going to be building until the Lord's return. And and if you're thinking about a property on Cumberland Trace, that's not what I'm talking about. That's an incidental. That's a consequence. I'm talking about building the spiritual kingdom of Christ, His church, 
We're going to be building until our Lord comes back. But as we build, we've got to understand what it takes to be successful in building. Elizabeth Mills is her name. And this woman, mostly what we know about her is her husband, Thomas Mills. Thomas Mills was a member of British Parliament in the 19th century. He was a speaker of, uh, or he was a justice of the peace. But she wrote two hymns that still exist in our song books today. And you're familiar with the lyrics. O land of rest, for thee I sigh, when will the moment come? When I shall lay my armor down and dwell at peace at home. I saw it at once, my Savior's side. No more my steps shall roam. With him I'll brave death's chilling tide and reach my heavenly home. The only other thing we know about Elizabeth Mills is that she died at the age of 24. I find it remarkable that a woman who barely reached adulthood wrote a song that we still sing regularly almost 200 years later. Fred Painter laid his armor down at the age of 87, and we honored that a few days ago. I don't know how many days and how many years we have on this earth, but however long that we have, our song needs to be, we'll work till Jesus comes, we'll work, and we'll be gathered home. Another song in our songbook says, there's much to do, there's work on every hand. Hark the cry for help comes ringing through the land. Jesus calls for reapers. I must act to be. What will thou, O Master? Here am I. Send me. That's from Isaiah's commission in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 8. I'm excited to look out and see little by little, bit by bit, this auditorium filling with more people, coming back, coming together, seeking to grow together. These are the foot soldiers. These are the wall builders. And God wants more of them because He wants His kingdom to grow. Is there a limit on what, how big God wants His kingdom to be? It's whosoever will, let Him come. How are we going to do that? We've got to avoid distractions because there's so many things in our daily lives outside the walls, even a few within the walls that can distract us. We've got to correct misinformation. We've got to be a true representation of who Jesus is, His Word and His work. We have got to practice supplication, be on our knees in prayer constantly, and we've got to aim for completion. All talks of visions and missions and objectives and goals at its best will be counterproductive. If we don't put our hand to the good work, the people had a mind to work in Nehemiah's day, Nehemiah 2.18. As we have that mind, let's stimulate one another's minds to do that work. This morning it may be that you're not yet a worker on the wall and you're ready to join that great work. May I encourage you to consider the great truth of the gospel that we're all sinners, but that God loved us so much that he gave his son to die for our sins. And he's given us a way back to him. He says, if you'll believe that Jesus is God's Son and you'll repent of sins. If you'll confess that Jesus is the Son of God and be baptized, those sins will be forgiven. You will rise to live as a new creature, a child of God, on the road to heaven and on the road as we work together, staying faithful to death. Let's find those others who are ready to pick up the sword and the hammer and are ready to go to work in the kingdom of God. Maybe as a child of God you've lost sight of the way that you need to be serving Him. Maybe you've taken your hands away from the good work and you want to come back to Him. If this is your invitation, we would encourage you right now to come as together we stand and sing.